Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay! Ta-da! The voice River Radio. of the Thames Valley. Singh on River Radio. Welcome to the big question. With me is the MD of River Radio, co-host Sam City, and today we're going to be talking to RAF squadron leader Amir Khan. Welcome, Amir. Oh, hang on a second. And we're just going to put your mic up so you can, uh, so so we, everyone can hear you. I'll just uh, say that again. Today we're talking to RAF squadron leader Amir Khan. Have you? Can you hear me, Amir? Yes, I can, and good morning, Rani, and thank you for having me on the show this morning. Good morning, Amir. Again, thank you. Amir is looking resplendent in his uniform with all his medals, and I've never seen you actually sitting down. I've I've only seen you standing up in 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 attendance at functions. So. Um, uh, I'm looking I'm forward, forward to this. Now, now our, first our first track, track Amir, Amir, is, is uh, Whenever, um, Wherever by Shakira. Can you explain why you, uh, why you chose this track? Yeah, sure. So the track by Shakira was first released in 2001 too, uh, and it was played on various radio stations. And I remember traveling to Afghanistan while, while this track was out. And, and uh, uh, the track itself is about uh, uh, distant relationships and what one must do to try and keep that alive. Um, um, for me, it, 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 because it's such a catchy tune, it, um, I used to play it whilst running out in uh, uh, Afghanistan. And uh, it uh, just took me to, I suppose, a happy place. And, and one needs that kind of stuff, I suppose, sometimes when you're in these kind of uh, hostile and challenging environments. So, um, yeah, really, for me, the track itself is about taking me somewhere where anything is possible if you put your mind to it.
Shakira, whenever, wherever, and um, uh, Amir just explained that uh, it helps him in hostile environments, and we're going to be talking about that later on because you you were in operation in the first Gulf War as well. Um, Amir, currently you're um, chief of staff of diversity um, with the uh, with the RAF, um, mm. and so can you explain what that is, please? Yeah, so the role itself is is a kind of uh, uh, um, about four four years old uh, or so. Um, the the RAF, along with its sister services, uh, um, you know, uh, literally prides itself on its dedicated staff, uh, and so the military are now actively working towards a fully diverse workforce um, and to reflect the society it serves. Uh, indeed, like I've said, the Royal Navy and the British Army are doing the same thing. We promote social mobility, uh, lifelong learning, uh, and provide a platform for success. That's what we're about. And we encourage our people uh, to literally advance in all areas. So in, in, in short, um, you know, I think you know, we want to try and reflect the society we serve, and therefore we have a dedicated team to try and uh, involve ourselves in the diverse communities up and down the country. Thanks, Amir. And there's lots of charitable and humanitarian social things that the RF does as well that the public might not know about. Tell us about those. Well, most uh, RF stations um, have uh, charities they work with locally. Uh, and uh, and, and we, we do a plethora of different things, whether it's through sports, raising money, through parachuting, uh, all sorts of different things. And these are local charities for stations and these are up and down the country. However, we do have the RF Benevolent Fund, the RF Museum, uh, things which are done nationally, and the museum is, is literally open to everybody. 
Great. And uh, thanks for telling us that. Now, the next song is about getting through adversity and challenges. It's Times Like These by the Foo Fighters. Can you tell tell us why you chose that one, please? Yeah, so uh, the actual song was uh, initially released, uh, I think, by the Foo, Foo Fighters. And then it was taken on, I think, by Live Lounge at the BBC uh, with a, a host of different kinds of uh, artists. Uh, but the song itself is about diversity. Uh, it was about one of the, uh, the band members who uh, literally was fall on hard times, and, and then he wrote this song to, to try and improve his life. So um, it was going through a difficult period, uh, and then for me, it, it's about uh, that really. I mean, we we will all come across experiences and challenges in our life, and, and certainly those of us in the military uh, work along, you know, in environments which can potentially be hostile. Uh, so the song for me is more about, you know, you may be in a situation now, but trying hard and finding uh, answers and uh, to those challenges, uh, you know, you, you can actually succeed. I'm probably very happy too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No worries, Let, let's have a listen to this and then we'll come back to hear Squadron Leader Amir Khan.
times like these you give and give again It's times like these you learn to love again It's times like these time and time I'm Ronnie Singh. You're listening to The Big Question on River Radio with Sam City, MD. And today we're talking to squadron leader Amir Khan with the RAF. Amir, were you born in the UK? Born in a, in a city called Bradford in West Yorkshire uh, in the uh, United Kingdom. Great. Tell me about your parents. So, so my my parents originate from an area between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, so, uh, before the undivided uh, India, the Greater India, it was known as the Northwest Frontier, uh, a place called Swat, uh, and now uh, uh, renamed as Pakhtunkhwa. And so, they originated from there. And my father joined the Royal Navy uh, from uh, India, and then found himself, I think, landed in Southampton. Got here, and I thought, well, this looks good, and 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 stayed here and later on then of course married my mother from the same area as well and and they resided here in in the united kingdom so how much of an influence was your dad's royal navy career on you would you say as a child well well well, my my father like i said i mean he he joined the royal navy and uh uh, so when we then uh attended and you know one of six siblings uh, second in line, um, and and he used to tell us these stories of from a very early age uh, of his kind of uh, adventures he had with the Royal Navy, um, and so I used to always listen to this. But he was a, 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 an advocate of going on to further education and all the rest of them. My brother, who was a clever one, of course, went off to Middlesex and then managed to get to Oxford as well. But I, I um, at the time of my A-levels, I thought to myself, well, you know something, I want something different. Bradford in, you know, around about 86, 87 wasn't, there wasn't many opportunities uh, as we have now. Um, so, and, and so listening to this story had an influence very early on. Uh, and when he used to talk about the Royal Navy and his time in, in service, he used to stand proud, push, puff his chest out and, you know, the kind of things we in the military do when we stand up tall. Um, so I thought, that's the kind of area I want to be in. And, and so I couldn't swim at the time. And now I know, of course, that makes no difference to joining the Royal Navy. Uh, but I thought, you know, uh, the Royal Air Force was for me. And, and so off I went down to the Armed Forces Careers Office. And, and here I am 30 odd years later. So what did you do when you did your um, first degree? Uh, right. So, so the, the education side of things, and one thing I must say, in the military in general, that, you know, the, the, the Navy, uh, the British Army and, and the Air Force, uh, Marines as well, push uh, edu- further education. I mean, it's something that they, uh, again, advocate for. Uh, it's lifelong learning within the military. It's not just about doing the course and that's it. Um, so, yeah, uh, for me, as, as, a, as a person who then went into the medical world as a, as a kind of ambulance technician, if we can call it that, before doing uh, some advanced courses, um, it was a natural progression for me to go into uh, doing a degree in health. Mm-hmm. And um, now joining the RAF, you, uh, you were one of the few Asians around, and our Sam here, of course, he, he joined the British Army um, uh, as well. So you were both one, must have been a real, a real few who joined um, who joined the armed forces in Britain? I'd like to ask you both what it was like. Sam, first, you maybe. 
Uh, I I didn't actually feel any alienation. Um, I, I, I had grown up in a very white world anyway. My, my grammar school was a thousand white kids and I was the only Indian kid in that environment. And, uh, in, in many ways, because of my... I, I played a lot of sport. I was a rugby player. Um, I, I settled in very well. And when I went to Sandhurst and joined my regiment after... Um, you know, yeah, there's the the occasional stupid comment, you know, um, you know, it, 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 in those days, you know, you, it was more uh, little comments that you get, you know, oh, you know, back in the Raj, are you, you know, and, and, and silly comments that you just, just ignored really and got on with your life and got on with your career. Um, that was my experience. Uh, I don't know what yours was like, Amir. Well, well, certainly, thanks. Um, yeah. I think I think you're right. Uh, for me, um, I came from a predominantly conservative Muslim type background in the centre of Bradford. So you can imagine the majority of people around me were those from the South Asian diaspora of the United Kingdom, and it didn't matter whether they were Sikh, Muslim, Hindus, but they were all from mainly a South Asian and some of the Black communities as well. So I was picked up from that, and again, a strict Muslim background, I'm plonked into a predominantly white British environment. Uh, and it wasn't just that, but the culture of the military as well. Um, so, but it, it, it was like, I looked at it a two-way thing. I had to adapt to, to, you know, the environment I chose to go into. And again, um, you know, uh, vice versa. So the environment then had to try and accept someone uh, who was different. And, and like you said there, Sam, I, I think, you know, it was a predominantly white area and therefore but, but they were looking at me thinking, you know, what is this guy about? What does he need? And occasionally, you know, the odd comment did uh, get me. So there were some challenges. I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, it was all hunky-dory. It, it, it wasn't. However, what I will say to you is is there was a robust regime. You know, if, if there was a complaint made, they then took it quite seriously and dealt with that, uh, which which was important. And there were silly comments. But look, uh, it, you know, here I am 30 years later and there's been massive advancements. You know, I can tell you someone from a, a Muslim background has managed to get to do the Umrah, which is which is in Mecca. You know, it's one of our holy sites, one thing that we must do. And, and that was kind of, you know... That's an annual, by, annual, by annual pilgrimage um, that... Um, yeah, really God-fearing Muslims uh, like that, to make if they can. That's right, Rami. And, and you we, said, we, and we you said have, that was supported. You know, yeah, yeah. And so we also have, you know, faith networks uh, who support people of different faiths as well. And, you know, there's the Jewish network, the Sikh, the Hindu, the Muslim Armed Forces, Muslim Association. These all exist now within the Ministry of Defence to support people from diverse communities and different religious groups. Uh, and I think from my understanding, there's something like 23 of these different networks. So as a, as a platform, the Ministry of Defence uh, is doing an awful lot to try and support uh, its workforce. Thanks for that, Amir. I'm going to ask you just for sound quality to stay as close to the laptop mic as you can, please, and hug it <laughs> if you can, metaphorically, okay. just so we okay. hear, hear you the best we can. Um, now, uh, your dad sadly passed away while, while this was all happening, but tell me about your training and, and how long was it, where was it, and what was it like? So... Um, 
As you're aware, Rani, I uh, joined the Air Force as as uh, a leading aircraft uh, man, and and you know if I can if I can equate it to the uh, uh, the British Army as a private. Yes. Uh, so starting literally at, at at the bottom of the rank structure, if I can put it that way, and uh, um, so yeah, so the initial training for someone like me was. Uh, you know, six weeks at uh, RF Swinderby at the time, which is now RF Halton, um, and then moved on uh, to do my kind of medical type training, which is a very basic training for 16 weeks uh, at RF Halton, which is in Aylesbury. And after that, one tends to go off to their first unit, and then you have a, a year which is on-the-job training, really, uh, and test throughout that year to make sure you meet the different targets. Um, so that was a kind of initial training, if I can put it like that. Would you say you fell in love with aircraft at any point? Um, yes, and the answer to that, Rani, is that I've always loved aircraft. I've always looked up and, 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 you know, when you're younger and thinking, how do these things fly? Where are they going? I would love to be, you know, and travel and, and that kind of uh, um, air power. was always in, I was always interested in how they managed to... To do what they do um so yeah and, and that's why i suppose natural progression was to fall into the royal air force as a career which was your first aircraft that you fell in love with well um now this is so exciting so all, all i can say to you as a 90 year old boy coming out of uh, bradford city um uh, i had the opportunity to fly in a seeking it's a rotary wing aircraft which was search and rescue which was at uh, RF Coltshaw, which was my first unit in, in uh, Norfolk. And so we used to have things called air experience flights, and as medics, one used to work in, in these aircraft, so therefore we used to look around them. Uh, so I, I remember flying in one of those, and I found it absolutely exciting. And, and look, while I was there, you know, we had the uh, RF Jaguar, and uh, the Jaguar aircraft, and... and and they used to air experience flights, and I managed at you know at the age of twenty to fly in the back of one of these. And and the only way I can describe it is somebody getting a huge slingshot, putting you into it, and then releasing it. Um, it it was just an amazing experience, and something I wouldn't have had if I'd have gone into any other job. Um, aircraft are flown in start anything from from a VC10, TriStar, C17. Uh, C-130s, these are the Hercules aircraft, big transport jets. Um, so, yeah, and the Chinook aircraft, which is probably one of my favourites, serving with them in Bosnia. I'm going to, Sam is, is back with us, so I'm going to ask him about his training, just to rewind in a, in a bit. But I'm also going to say that um, uh, I've been privileged to get out to some hostile environments, especially in the Himalayas. And... Uh, when you're going into those places, um, which are very sensitive border areas in, in, in the mountains, the only way you can get into the valleys or, or, or see or get from A to B sometimes is in a Chinook um, helicopter, which are these kind of long sausage-shaped things that we can even see flying over us in the Thames yeah, Valley area. double propellered. double propellered, And they can fit loads of... Um, uh, military people inside. I don't know how many, Amir, but, uh, uh, and, and cargo, of course. And it's not comfortable. You don't have seats properly. You're, you're, <laughs> you're at the side. Yeah, it's amazing. There's no airline stewardess. There's no afternoon <laughs> snacks. I mean, what, what, what is this sort of service that you're getting? I mean, you know, the first time I got in, I was, you know, looking for in-flight entertainment. There was nothing there. <laughs> 
but I fell in love with them then, and I've had a thing about Chinook helicopters ever since. And I live in a flight path path as well. So, uh, and also RAF Northolt's not far from me, and um, so Chinooks are going over several times a day and I have and I have you know something happens to me when they when they go over I don't know I guess you're not allowed to say why why they ha- why that happens not why why something happens to me but why the cheeks chinooks are going over my house regularly um Amir so I won't I won't put you in the embarrassing situation of, of asking you can, can I just say I hate them all right because the only thing that I remember is basically I get in it and then I get thrown out of them. That's the, and you, Amir had the joy, right, of he would take off, go somewhere and land and come back and have a cup of tea. My life was literally in a four-ton, get to the airport, get in one of those with an 80-pound backpack and then Amir would go, go, or somebody like him would go, go. That's it. They threw us out the airplane and that was it. They went off. They, they just sailed off into the future and we were just dumped somewhere, like Salisbury yeah, normally. Sam, Sam, you're absolutely right. I can recall uh, Bosnia, you know, the former Republic of Yugoslavia when we were there. And uh, one of one of the jobs, so I was a, a medic in the back and then we had the crew and we had to pick up people like your good self and then drop you off somewhere else. And um, it, it was winter and, and my word, it was cold out there. And I remember picking up some, some uh, infantry guys and this one guy, you know, I looked at him, he, he literally lost his gloves and he was holding on to his uh, it was just him so I went there and luckily I used to carry extra gloves and warm kit right. and they give it to him and uh, yeah no he was of course he was very grateful but I took my hat off to him because off he went then to this particular area the mountain and, and off he went and uh, I just I did you know you're quite right Sam I thought to myself at least I'm <laughs> going back to get some and warm up yeah you're gonna go that. yeah it's like, it on. And, and we're we're dumped in the middle of nowhere and then the first thing we do is hit the ground really hard then you get your kit out and then you're trying to find a cover and then you're going right are we all here yeah no one's injured excellent that's the first start <laughs> right now we've got to get into combat zone so you're moving and then you the worst bit are you say this is one of my tricks because I'm quite short, I'm five foot seven. When I started, I was six foot four, but I, I shrunk as I dropped out the ground a lot. And but what you would do is you'd always go and find the tallest person to go and do your trench with. That was the trick. Because what would happen is you'd both have to dig to your armpit. And but if he's six foot four, he has to dig further. And so what would happen is the rain when it came would all slide down his end. So I'd always go in the trench with a really tall person so that I was nice and dry through the night. It was wonderful. And Sam, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sat in your nice little office. Like, you know, are you ready, chaps? Let's go and run another run. Yeah, and we, we'd all be like, oh, great. But just going to that, when, when you had to pop out for a minute, Sam, we were talking about Amir's training. Yeah. And Amir, I'd, I'd like to ask you both, actually, because people don't talk about this very much. You know, you both got through your trainings, didn't you? Yes. And you both started to get into officer ranks after that. But tell me, please, how hard was that training? What was the most difficult thing for both of you? And what were you thinking and feeling? Amir, first you go. Right, so, so Ray, my story is uh, really quite long. I mean, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, it was all excitement, and, and, and I'm sure some can say that, that when, when you're young, anything is possible, and, and you just crack on and deal with it. 
But as I progressed through the ranks, uh, I mean, you know, certainly the experiences were fantastic and then the support I got was fantastic as well. But when I got to the rank of warrant officer, which is the highest rank you can get as an enlisted individual before commissioning, um, you know, it's I got Before you go into officer. the officer stream, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right, Randy, before you become an officer. Um, so, so again, as, as what we classed in, in the military as an earlier long enlisted, uh, um, I went through what's called the Commission Warrant Officers course, which is a lot shorter than, say, for example, the, the course uh, on entry for officers coming in straight in as, as officers. It was only a week long. However, you know, I had, you know, 20-odd years' experience by then, and uh, so, you know, they didn't go through the basics. Why would that be a waste of time? So my experience becoming an officer was really quite a, a week's course. Um, and again, picking up terminology and understanding a little bit more about air power and, and, and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, the challenges weren't to becoming an officer as much, I'm sure, as, as Sam being a para. <clears throat> well, no, I mean, you, you took the hard route to officership because, I mean, you took the, the long run, as they say. So you say it was a week long. I'd actually say it was 20 years long, right? I mean, that's that's... You know, going into Sanders, I went in 1985. I can still remember my entry course, SMC 8513. It's ingrained in you. It's it's awful, you know. It's like... Um, but, you know, my, mine was a short course in, in the sense that's all they put you through. I think it should be a three-year course when you're 18, not six months. You know, I think it should be a degree-level course, but that's budgets and that's that's military money for you. But that said... You know, you, you learn a lot, you come out, uh, and but you learn a lot more when you're in situation and, and having to live day in, day out as an officer. Um, there is, I mean, there is that moment. I mean, I, I wonder if, if you had it as well, which was, um, uh, it was the, uh, the I, I used to learn that sir was actually a derogatory word from warrant officers. They never really meant it. Um, that was the first thing. They never actually called you sir for politeness. And then the second one was, I just remember, you know, you used to have to learn, as they say in Santos, I'm sure that was the same for you, Amir, where you throw your hand up and you rip it down again. It was a very fast, very, very uh, methodical method. And then the first time you were at regiment and, the, and it, let's say a corporal or a, uh, a squaddy walks past you and he literally throws one up and you lazily throw one back at him. And he's like, then you walk around the corner and go, yeah, I got a salute. <laughs> I know it's childish, I know, but that was how I felt. I remember it. No, you're absolutely right, Sam. And that's when you first take your first salute and you think to yourself, well, you know, you stand proud, you go around. And, <laughs> and then after a while, when you're doing it uh, uh, often, you think, oh, God, here yeah. we go again, especially if a squad walks past you and they all decide to salute at different times and, and you obviously take the salute back. The yeah, feet. followed by the, the inimitable yeah, yeah. eyes left or eyes right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just must add, I mean, I talked about, you know, for me as an individual, it was a week long, but, but now, of course, officer training is at RF Cranwell. It's modularised. It's four times six weeks of, over a period as well. So, you know, someone like yourself, Sam, if you were coming into the Air Force, would do that particular course at the modernized initial officer training at uh, RF Cranwell. So literally it's four times six week course you would do. So it's a lot longer right. um, yeah, in direct. I had no idea that salutes were so, there was so much to them. Um, I thought I could try and practice with you now. But is, is that how it's done? No, oh no, I can't Miles do away, Ravi. We're, oh, we're not going there. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I mean, you need to do some education right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And and the sound, before we go to the music, the sound of choppers, the sound of aircraft, have you got that in your in your head, Amir, all the time? I have, and, and you know, it's, well, not in the head, I, I love the sound. I am lucky enough to live in a village which is on the flight path of two uh, RAF camps, and, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, it still gives me a buzz when they go past. I still look up and I'm still, uh, you know, excited by by the whole thing. Uh, and that is kind of like 35 years into the military, and I, and I still think that, and that's probably one of the reasons I chose this particular village, because I knew I could to see those special when we start getting the new aircraft, the F-35 fly past, and then, and then you know, which is which is brilliant, really. So tell me why you chose Champagne Supernova by Oasis. So again, this is a, a catching Liam Gallagher, you know, and a, a, a Noel Gallagher, a, a, you know, really uh, talented individuals. I love the, uh, the the songs they were putting out as Oasis. And so Champagne Supernova, again, it, you know, uh, reading into some of this, and, and the research may not be accurate, but they asked uh, uh, what, is, what is the song all about? And to him, it said it means different things to different people. Uh, for me, the song, you know, the lyrics as well, talks about uh, meeting friends along the way, and those friends, certainly from a military perspective, meet an awful lot of people as you go on. And you may not keep in touch with them, but it, it's the memories which you cherish and, and the times you've had with them. And I'm sure Sam's talked about, and he, he still smiles about his times in the para. It's those kind of moments, and, and that's why the, the song is important uh, to me. Thanks. Let's listen to Oasis. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? Someday.
Oasis, uh, chosen by our guest in studio today, squadron leader Amir Khan, and I'm here with Sam Seti. This is Rani Singh talking to you on River Radio's The Big Question. Amir, you have, of course, uh, as part of medical support, been in some very serious situations. You were in the first Gulf War, and we're going to go through some of those locations. I'd be really grateful if you'd tell us about what it was like um, being in the first Gulf War and what you did. So, yeah, thanks, Charlie. Yeah, you know, as you say, I've been in the first Gulf War, yeah, the former Republic of Saudi, and, and I've recent a lot of time over, over Afghanistan as well. Uh, and, and so as a medic, one tends to see something, you know, when we're busy, someone else is having a really hard time. So that's the way we used to look at it and give it uh, the best we can. But, you know, from, from you know, the first Gulf War, as we, as we you know, kind of launched in, uh, uh, in the, I found myself in a, in a little place called Pamrate in Oman, which was to, at the time was in the middle of a desert. There was nothing. So we had to literally start from scratch. We had a, a particular squadron with us at the time, and our job was, was literally to deliver primary health care and any emergency care if, if things uh, did happen. So we literally had to liaise with the local uh, um the people, the Omanis, uh, to try and accommodate some some equipment and uh, well, not equipment, buildings really. Uh, but we set up with tents, uh, and uh, and again, what that does, the challenges that brings, you know, when you are trying to deliver primary healthcare and talk about, you know, to try and deliver something that you would get in the UK equivalent. It means cleanliness. It means resupply. It means being able to to give that privacy. Uh, there, there's an awful lot to think about. So, so that was really the first Gulf War, uh, and and you know, luckily we didn't receive the amount of casualties we, we were expecting, uh, and and so uh, yeah, um, a challenging times, uh, but yet again there was a lot of teamwork from everybody because everybody there is ready to help everyone else to deliver what we, we were tasked to do. How how on earth do you build something? Do you do you build a field hospital in the middle of a desert, Amir? Well, well, if if I can just bring you forward, say to somewhere like Afghanistan, and you know, and and again in two thousand and two, we went in, in to, to to kill the airhead and, and make the area safe. And as you're aware, and Sam is is probably nodding to this. You know, that isn't just you find an area to build upon. You've got to think about you know the 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 flora, flora, the the you know whatever animals are around, you know, the snakes around. So all those kind of things. And of course, the biggest drama in places like Afghanistan was the mines. You can't just wander in and, and expect to build something on somewhere. So they they were the biggest challenge we had, and, and you know Afghanistan at one point was one of the most mined areas uh, in the world. So you can imagine the challenges that brought in itself. So once you cleared all of that, luckily we had something called tactical medical wing, tactical supply wing, tactical comms units, where they're trained, highly trained individuals to go into places where there is nothing and build something. And, of course, we're very closely with the British Army uh, as well because they have logistics, uh, uh, Royal Engineers. And we built uh, a hospital, and there is a format how to build this particular. It literally was brilliant where we had areas where we could perform surgery, wards, and a primary health care bit as well. The thing to think about there, of course, is that's all brilliant when you go in initially as this stuff arrives on C-17s is, is then what do you do for resupply? How do you maintain it? generators, water. I mean, the list is endless, and I can see Sam nodding there, and, and, and they are challenging. But once you get through those challenges, you, the, you know, the sense of achievement is massive. 
and it's all about teamwork. It's no one individual delivers that. The the famous line is a mar- an army marches on its belly. Um, it's that supply line. Uh, if you haven't got it, it doesn't you, you can't go further. It's a bit like an umbilical cord. You you can't go into combat zones without yeah. having that supply line there. You know, uh, famously in the Second World War, Rommel in in the Desert War, basically he had the superior force, but the supply line for petrol was cut off, and so his panzer tanks uh, tanks were useless. And so the British Army then actually had a good supply line and we, we overwhelmed him. And that, that's an example of where a greater force without a great supply line just doesn't have any chance of surviving. Fascinating. Have you been, in th- as, as it's called, in theatre, Sam? No, I, 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 I did Northern Ireland. Uh, I did a few few other bits and pieces. But, but yeah, no, I, I didn't do the Gulf. I, I, I was in that window between the Falklands and Gulf and... Uh, call me lucky or call me unlucky depends on which side of the fence you want to go on um but you know i i, I enjoyed my time i did other things and uh, yeah uh wouldn't regret you know actually my biggest regret was coming out so i wish i hadn't come out but there you go and i'd, I'd and like I think, um, you're absolutely right they, they, you know they, there are different challenges isn't there uh, I, I mean, you know, you, you just mentioned Northern Ireland there, and, you know, again, I'm not going to get into the political side of things, no. but, but as an individual, as a soldier, you, you would have experienced all sorts. And I know people from the Grenadier Guards, uh, they're friends of mine, and, and you know, I, I met them years ago, and they're still, I'm lucky enough, some of them live around here. I've got a big RAF contingent around here, but there are people from other services. And they talk about, you know, things like Northern Ireland, and they didn't... But, but that in itself I find fascinating, what they were going through as they were doing their job. Uh, and only you you experienced that. I mean, I never did Northern Ireland, but, but uh, I think it's all... You know, they're all kind of like memories. You can, you're going to keep that for the rest of your life, I think. You know? Well, I think, I think the, the, the joint experience we would both have had is the heightened fear that you take. It's, it, it, you can train all you like... You know, uh, a lot of a lot of my military training would be with uh, what they call dumb dumb bullets, uh, in in sense of you know they're blanks. You know, and then we would do live firing over your head, and you'd hear the the famous thing that I, f- I you know, if you've never had a bullet fired at you, um, if you're in a, a firing range and you're marking what's called the butts, <clears throat> you hear a crack over your head, and the crack over your head is the bullet going at the going through the speed. Uh, barrier you know the sound barrier so uh, that crack you would never hear in real life combat if you got shot because the crack's gone into you so actually when you hear that crack it's actually quite a satisfying thing because you know the bullet's gone and it's not hit you and that's that's a really weird thing to say but in real combat situations your heightened fear is what an adrenaline is what will keep you alive but you can't simulate that there is no way to simulate that is there Amir I mean you know. No, no. Sam, you, you hit an important point there. You're absolutely right. First of all, you know, there is no experience who's, or, or is going to train you for that experience. Yeah. You can do all the training in the world. And the other thing, you know, once you hear it, you know, you're going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I can, you know, obviously I won't spend those days, maybe one day, one way, face to face over a coffee on the, on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so you've both felt that heightened fear, but, you know, when I feel heightened fear, as I have in the River Radio studio, when the technical thing goes wrong or something like that, I go into paralysis mode. So how do you both overcome that? 
How do you both, you know, the fight or flight chemicals start kicking in and you can either get paralyzed like an animal in the headlights or you, you, you become more able. So how do you both do that thing? I, I think, Tom, if I may, um, it, I think it's depending on the situation, but we are highly trained individuals. Let's make no mistake about that. The, 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 the armed forces of the United Kingdom are highly trained individuals, and, and we put through, and having said earlier on, nothing actually prepares you for a scenario. Uh, however, you, you know, you deal with it. You know, I've been in situations in Afghanistan where, unfortunately, there was an explosion, and uh, the casualties then came in to us in, in uh uh, at the time in Kandahar, and we, we had a field hospital. And, and you know, uh, and, and again, you know, you're dealing with this and you're trained for it, but there is that human uh, touch to it all. There, there's someone there, and because and, I speak Pashto as well, and, and so, you know, there was one individual... That's, a, who that's the uh, language of the region, which is which Pakistan yes, is... Yes, it's the language of the region that is spoken. It struggles, you know, the most now known as Pakistan and, 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 the, and Afghanistan itself. Uh, and so I speak it fluently and with, with the dialects as well. And so there was this guy who came in and he was badly hurt and all the rest of it. But for him, the biggest drama, I mean, you know, we were all feeling it. And I you say, but you deal with it. But I just held his hand at the time. And I said to him, just look at me. Because there was that cultural and that religious thing where there were females and they were, of course, cutting away his clothes. And he didn't want that. He said to me, you know, just just let me go. I don't want this. The shame is too much. But you deal with the situation. No one's ever trained me for that. But I did say to him, I held his hand and said, just look at me. Whatever these people are going to do to you, he's going to make you better. You know, and, and weeks later, I saw the man with a big beaming smile as he was lurking around the smoking pit, uh, you know, waving at me. And I thought, well, well <laughs> there you go, my friend. You know, you're up and running. But, uh, but yeah, Raddy, I hope that answers your question. There isn't one situation which you think, oh, I'm fully prepared for that. You, you know, we are highly trained, but, you know, there is that human element to it. It, it, is, it is. You said it brilliantly. I mean, it, it's training that will get you over the fear, right? You, you've practised, you've practised, you've practised. You know the drill. So as soon as you hit enemy contact, you know, you go into action mode in the sense that, brain guns go down you hit the ground you have you count rounds you go through your situation yeah you you radio in you let people know where you are the whole thing is then in a it it is a manual read-through but it's a great read-through because you know that you do your thing others around you will do their thing and you then will get through the situation if you then go you know what i'd call cowboy rogue or or, you know gung-ho rambo you might as well forget it. There, there was a famous uh, in the Falklands. Um, the the British Army have not called the fixed bayonets charge since the Falklands, and the reason was, uh, and it was a guard, Scots Guards officer, a bit bit wet behind the ears. Uh, he hadn't done his sitch rep, so he was literally there was a Argentinian brain gun on the hill above, uh, and he didn't count rounds so he just gave a command of rapid fire against the position they ran out of rounds really really quickly and then the next thing that happened was they had no rounds so he literally panicked and called fixed bayonets charged the argentinians just gave up because they thought if we've got a brain gun and you or a gpmg and you're going to charge up a hill with just knives basically attached to the end of your rifles we give up you're mad and that was it. 
but it's never ever been called since I believe that was the last time fixed bayonets charge was used but that was because he got all the situation rep wrong when he when he got contact but he was able to think on his feet no he was just lucky I'm sure actually I'm sure it was the warrant officer who took over or the RSM who went you're a Rupert go away sir go and sit in a corner and just don't move while we sort this shit out oops shouldn't say that apologies everybody bleep bleep we'll bleep that one out it's, it's amazing, Sam, your passion in even telling that story, and that's what I'm talking about. You know, once you've been in the military, you will you will always have that experience. And, and, and think back to what I said about my father. He still got passionate about the work he was doing, and that is just brilliant to see, you know. Good stuff. I had another question, but I really don't want to skip over Iraq and Bosnia and Turkey. Is there anything else that you want to tell us? Because they reach different, different, oper- different yeah, theatres yeah, of operation. Look, do you know, you're quite right, right? Each kind of theatre, as we describe it, is different. But, you know, I, I, a lot of my work has been working either as a, a medic on the back of an, an aircraft dealing with casualties or flying them back to the United Kingdom or, you know, dealing with kind of primary and secondary health care. So, so it, it, it's all of that stuff. And the challenging points are whether you're flying in the back of a Chinook, as we've mentioned, is slightly different and picking people up because of the noise, the shaking, the movement, or you're, you're in, a, in a kind of situation in uh, Afghanistan, whether it was the first time I went in or the second time I went in in, uh, in Kandahar. You know, but it, it, it's all about different experiences and each is slightly different. But because we're trained, as, as Sam has said, and because we have the equipment and because we are, you know, uh, uh, which I describe the United Kingdom's elite armed forces, uh, it, it, it's pretty, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we've got support there and you do deal with quite a lot. Now, in 2005, you were awarded this, the Order of St. John Amir and the Joint Commander's Commendation in 2008. You're very modest and you don't talk about this, but what were the awards for? What did you do? Okay, so the award, uh, if, if we deal with the Order of St. John first, it, it, uh, it goes back to the 11th century. And, and you know, people were looking after travellers as, as, as they went past them. So it, it didn't matter about their faith or background. These individuals looked after them. And, and then it was recognised by the church around about 1113 uh, that their work they were doing was pretty good. And so if we can come up to now, I mean, the Order of St. John is, is dedicated service to, to, uh, to the St. John's. However, in the military, uh, we do receive it for outstanding work given to the medical field. Uh, and, you know, and, and so, I mean, I don't, you're quite right, I, I don't talk about it much, but, but it was mainly the work done, done in, in, I suppose, in Afghanistan over the uh, prom period of different theatres uh, I've, I've been, you know, experienced over the years. And so, so that was the uh, the uh, order of Saint John, and it's I don't know if you can see it, but it's it's the the one that sits at the top of the state. What you, you see that yeah. one there with the silver cross? Um, you can see it. It's and, across and so, above the colours yeah, on your so, left uh, on your the left side of your chest. Yeah. So so and and again, you're very very proud and lucky to receive that. Uh, it's an honour to receive it. It's a state award, and uh, absolutely, yeah. You know, uh, we went down to St John's Square to pick that up and and have it uh, uh, presented. Uh, so, so that was very, very good, and again, honoured to have received that as well. And again, it's not just my work, it, it, it was everybody's work. It, you know, in the medical world, you work as a team. 
the same thing, I suppose, with, with the Joint Commander's Commendation as well. That was uh, for Afghanistan, mainly, to, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, and again, we found ourselves in some kind of hostile and tricky situations, which, which um, you know, again, if you're highly trained, this kind of uh, automatic mode kicks in and, and you do what you've got to do. Um, and that was recognised uh, by my boss at the time and uh, here at me. Well, that will lead us nicely to our final track. But before I do that, I need to just say thank you very much. I mean, it's great to have you both here with me uh, talking to me today on The Big Question. And next week, we'll, we're, we're going to have somebody who's, uh, who's run 21 marathons and specialises in duathlons as well, Ajay Patel, who doesn't live too far from here by the river. And, um, and he's, he's another very interesting friend, and he's going to be coming in. Also, it happens to be the end of Pride Month next week, and, and that's another reason I've invited him in. But uh, for today, uh, thank you very much, Sam, for co-hosting with me, Sam Seti. Pleasure. Uh, on the big question and um, uh, I'd, as we play up the last song Amir uh, and you tell us about it I want to first of all say thank you to you uh, squadron leader Amir Khan from the RAF for taking time out to talk to us today on the big question and it's been really fascinating I hope you will uh, talk to us again sometime um, and uh, tell us about uh, the last one, which is very famous, Ness and Dorma, because it leads on directly from what we've been talking about. Yes. Uh, but, you know, thank you very much again, uh, uh, Rani. Sam, great talking to you. I mean, guys are in the area. You know, you're more than welcome to spin dates in my garden anytime. Thank you, Amir. Uh, I will. I may even make you a brew. Um, <laughs> Steady. Don't go too far, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a happy Armed Forces Day and week to everyone as well, by the way. So, so that's uh, always good. Yes. If I can come on to uh, Nessun Dorma, uh, which is uh, let no one sleep. This 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 particular kind of part of the opera, as we all know, it's from uh, the opera. Is about uh, well, the whole opera is about a, a princess who who has literally uh, just you know put to death many of her suitors if they don't answer three riddles um, that she has uh, put together. But this one particular prince. Is, is adamant. He's, he's going to be, you know, he's going to take a hand and, and uh, that's what he's going to do. And in the end, uh, you know, the, the, as the song comes up, he manages to achieve that. So through, through kind of uh, adversity, he reaches for the stars. And it's one of the uh, mottos, the motto for the RF, Paradwa Ad Astra, which means kind of through adversity to the stars. Um, so, so uh, yeah, um, song is brilliant, love it, and uh, it has a meaning. Through that adversity, you will, you will achieve. Thank you. Amir Khan, River Radio salutes you. But you can't salute, Rani. We've, we've worked that out. <laughs> That's why I said try. it. <laughs> see, you your job. <laughs> see you every. See you next week, everybody. Thanks, Amir. Thanks. Take care, Sam. everyone. See you soon. Bye. Bye.